are in Psalm 22. We'll read a verse together and then pray together, and I hope you'll use your Bibles, or use them, or just we have them on the screen, almost all the verses, as we look at something that's timely, I think, for us, and needful as well. Psalm 22, verse 22 says this, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Let's pray. Father, please help us tonight as we look at your word. Such an important, powerful topic in such a brief time as we have tonight. But we pray for help to that end. Help us all to learn, to understand, to embrace what you and your word says about this vital doctrine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to study something tonight that is that's really crucial as a Bible doctrine. Even though, I must say, it's rarely taught and rarely embraced in modern American Christianity. I don't know that you'll ever hear this doctrine taught or preached on Christian television, ever. Um, perhaps if there's a local church preaching it, a pastor, and he happens to be on television, sure. And I got to say, it's not a difficult doctrine. It's not something that's hard to find in the Bible. It's not something that's even debatable. And it's certainly not an unimportant doctrine. It's actually as dear to the heart of our Lord as anything else in the New Testament. And we know that because the Bible says that Jesus loved the church and what? Gave himself for it. Now, that's not minor. If it's something Christ loved and gave himself for, that's certainly not unimportant. What did Jesus love? What did he love and give himself for? You understand, beloved, that if Jesus loved the church, and if he founded the church, and if he gave himself and wrote letters to the church, churches from heaven... If that's all true, then you can, you can mark it down. Satan hates the church. And he will therefore do anything and has done quite well at destroying what is the truth about the local church. And in fact, that's what all those seven letters were about. If you read them, trying to keep those churches from losing their identity, the candlestick taken out, and so forth. And that's what all of the epistles are about. It is what all the requirements that are given in the New Testament epistles and the offices and the ordinances and, and so forth. Pretty much everything in the New Testament is to and through and for the New Testament church. So why is it then that about 90%, that's my guess, maybe a little lower, maybe higher, about 90% of professing believers have no idea what the church, the church, really is. You know, the most basic premise of Catholicism is, quote, the universal church. The word Catholic means, as you all know, universal. And the whole idea that the church <coughs> is the church, that there's one true church in all the world, that all Christians belong to that one church is, of course, man-made. So that the very word itself now, that is the word church, 
The very word itself has lost its meaning, its biblical meaning. Now, when Luther, Martin Luther, and when Calvin and Zwingli and some of these other men, when they broke from the Catholic Church, unfortunately, but not surprisingly, they still held into their hearts the same notion of a universal, the church's one big universal entity. And that's the reason why today mainline denominations and their seminaries, they still speak of the church, the church, or the invisible church, the body is the church, as, as, quote, a larger representation of what you see in the New Testament. Well, I'm going to tell you something, because what you're going to see, I think, and what you should know about the church in the Bible, and what you see modeled and taught and explained clearly in the New Testament, is that there is no larger representation. There is no improvement. There's no evolution of God's original program and definition when it comes to the idea of a church. No, what is established in the New Testament by Christ and the epistles is and has, and has always existed in history is not going to be replaced or hasn't been replaced. It is and remains God's design all the way until what Jesus said, the end of the world, until Jesus comes again. <clears throat> Years ago, I heard um, the founder of TBN say something to his audience that was destructive and, and unbelievable. He said to his TV audience, not once, but this is the first time I ever heard him say because it's not like I watch TBN. He said, if you've gotten saved by one of our programs you watched and you heard the gospel and you got saved, and I'm sure people did and do, if you've gotten saved and you want to be a part of the body of Christ, he's already wrong right there, if you want to be a part of the body. He said, send us your name and you can become a member of the TBN family church and we'll send you and he held it up this beautiful certificate much better than anything we send out I don't think we send out a certificate but they do we'll send you a certificate of membership and we'll even baptize you if you ever come to the Dallas area in our studios and then he said I want to send you if you do this join our church the church I'll send you a box of offering envelopes of course and then I'll be your pastor, or will be your pastors. And sure enough, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people worldwide are members of this TV church. Even though that very idea is impossible. It's an oxymoron by definition, Bible definition. If you look again at verse 22 of our text, it says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Now, why am I looking at an Old Testament text in a study of the New Testament church? Well, it's because this verse is quoted in the New Testament. You'll see the word congregation there, right? You see it? That Hebrew word for congregation is translated congregation and assembly. Many times, mostly assembly in the Old Testament. And everybody here knows what a congregation is. We all know what it means to congregate. It's exactly what this verse is referring to. So what's the New Testament quotation of that same verse? Well, you don't need to turn there because I'm going to put some of these on the board, but you can turn there if you want. It's in Hebrews chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Here's what it says, verse 12. Saying, 
I will declare thy name unto my brethren. We get the wrong one up there. I'll read it to you or turn there. Hebrews 2 verse 12. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? That verse is the quotation saying, saying, and then he quotes the verse we just looked at in Psalms that talks about the congregation. Follow me? So, here in Hebrews it says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? That's kind of weird. Calling this group of people a church and then quoting an Old Testament passage as its basis. And it would be weird except that people have the wrong idea of what the word church means. And it would be weird except for the fact of what the Greek word here. And again, I know you all know this, at least 95% of you here tonight know that ekklesia, ek out of, ekklesia, called out assembly. That literal translation of the word church, ekklesia, means a congregation. It means an assembly of people called out from, you know, a, a larger group. So all that Hebrews 2.12 is saying, you understand, all it's talking about is, it a, is a congregation at this point. It's talking about an assembly. And to further emphasize this truth, we're going to look at Acts chapter 7, or it might be on the screen. Acts chapter 7. Turn there. Otherwise. And here's what it says, verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall you hear. Verse 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with Moses. What? This is he that was in the church in the wilderness which the angel which spake of him in the Mount Sinai. So we know what he's talking about here. He's talking about the congregation, which is what it's called in the Old Testament, which is the same Hebrew word that we looked at earlier. A church in the wilderness. There was no church in the Old Testament. Jesus founded the church in the New Testament. And that's true. But just remember what the word church means. What the Greek word and this English word all means. It means ekklesia. It means a called out assembly. And that's exactly what the children of Israel were out in the wilderness. They were an assembly of people that God called out of Egypt, in fact, out of the world. Visible, meeting, gathered, local. By the way, the word ecclesia that the New Testament writers applies here to God's institution that Jesus will look at later, speaks of in Matthew, was a common word in that day. So that when they, were, when they read the, the original manuscripts, the word ecclesia, it was a word that they used in their common language. And it meant a gathering, an assembly. It's used other times in the Bible without being translated as the word church, the word ecclesia. And I think it's good to look at that. Acts chapter 19. Turn there. Or look on your screen in a moment. Oh, there it is. <clears throat> Acts 19. Look at this. It says in verse 31, And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Theater. Okay, this is, some of you have been there. I think, I think you guys went there. On Ephesus and the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly. Guess what that word assembly is? Ecclesia. Ecclesia. Elsewhere translated as church. 
It says, for the assembly was confused. Now, I know a lot of churches are confused. I'm confused a lot. But that's not talking about what we think of as a church. This is a gathering of people. This assembly is the word ecclesia. It's the exact, note this, it is the exact same word that Jesus used in Matthew 16 when he said, I will build my church. I will build my congregation, my assembly. In other words, a local gathering of people in an Ephesian theater actually comes closer to the idea, the Bible definition of a church than Paul Crouch's TBN TV church. Because they're not assembling. They're all over the place. This one's a mob that uses the word ecclesia. Acts chapter 19. You're there or you will be. I think it's verse... 41, and when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly, the ecclesia, the mob, was literally called, in our English language, a church. This is the same word elsewhere used in the New Testament translated as church. And here's the thing, if the idea of a local assembly is what the Bible teaches is a church, then it would make sense and it should be that they are addressed and thought of as such right in their minds in that day it should be thought of as an assembly indeed acts chapter 11 and i'll i think they'll put that on the screen verse 22 then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in jerusalem now i want you to notice the word in this is important okay the church which was the assembly, okay, get that in your mind, the congregation, the gathering that was in Jerusalem. Well, let's take every single instance in your mind that you can think of now, such as 1 Corinthians 1, to the church at Corinth. Galatians, to the churches, all right, church at churches in Galatia. So, these places, ordained elders in every city, these places had, had a church. Peter talks about, in 1 Peter 5, the church at Babylon. When Jesus wrote those seven letters, they were addressed to seven different churches of Asia Minor. He didn't say to the church of Asia Minor. He wrote to the church at Thyatira, the church at Laodicea, and so it goes. So, there's a church in Jerusalem. When the Bible says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, he wasn't talking about a bunch of people just buying tickets and gathering together at a football stadium, and then a guy gets up there and calls them the church. He wasn't talking about an assembly of people around a television set all over the world. He wasn't talking about a denominational assembly in Nashville or Rome or Salt Lake City. He was talking about people getting together locally. Obviously, a local church. And it is to local churches that all of the instructions about pastors, deacons, baptism, Communion, 
church discipline, the apostles' doctrine, all of that is given to individual, local churches. When Paul wrote his first epistle to Corinth, they had very specific needs. We just studied that book that applied specifically to them in that city. When Jesus wrote that letter to the church at Sardis, very different place, but that was a church. Those are individual churches. You say, well, Pastor, then why do we have all of these big, huge denominations and all of them call themselves the church, the Presbyterian church, the Catholic church, and so on? Well, very quickly, and I won't go into this because, again, I think most of you know this, but you know the history of all of that, right? The Roman Empire. Constantine, the emperor of Rome, has a vision. Now, you say, was it, do you think he really had it? He either really had it or he faked it because he thought it would be a good political move. If he really had it, I know that it wasn't from Jesus because Jesus didn't tell us to go and conquer through force. It's the opposite. So therefore, he got it from someone else other than Jesus. Anyway, he had a vision. It was a cross, and it said, in this sign, conquer. And Constantine, who was a pretty smart ruler, he said, you know, these Christians all over the empire are troublesome. They're annoying. They don't go along. They don't bow to Caesar. If you can't beat them, join them. So I'll tell you what I'll do. They're growing like crazy in the empire. So instead of just constantly persecuting and fighting them, let's just join them. And by joining them, he meant take them over. And that way, every time we, you know, go to some new land and we'll just Christianize it. So it became the Holy Roman Empire. And it was called the church. Now understand that before Constantine did that, there were thousands of, of assemblies of believers just like you that didn't agree with the Roman Empire and all of its, its uh, methods and so forth. That it was secular. And then, of course, the reformers came along Courageous men, to be sure. And they realized that this, this thing that Constantine started was corrupt. Men like Martin Luther started a denomination that's today called the Lutherans. But Steve loves the Lutherans. And then there was Zwingli, who he came along and, and um, he was a priest, a Catholic priest. And he pulled away and, and he started the Reformed denomination. And then there was Calvin. He was a, he was a Catholic lawyer. And he said, no, I don't like it anymore. And so he started the Presbyterian. And these are all dominations, denominations. And then, of course, there's Henry VIII. Henry VIII wants to get a divorce, and the Pope says no, because it was all Catholic in England at the time. And uh, he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. He said, hey, grant me a divorce. And he said, no, and it's all political. It's corrupt. And so he says, all right, never mind. I'm just going to change our church to the Church of England. I'm the Pope now. I and mean, when you're king, you can kind of do that stuff. And so he did. And so you had the Church of England, which is nothing but warmed over version of the church at Rome. Still have the robes and the incense and the chanting and all very similar, and that's why. And then you have young men in Church of England under that umbrella, like John Wesley and Charles Wesley, and they said, even the Church of England's corrupt. So well, we got saved, let's get out of it. And, and the, the, their enemies called them Methodists because they had different methods than the Church of England. And so now you have all these denominations that that some way or another came out of this thing that Constantine concocted centuries before. That explains some things. That explains why they, almost all of them, all of them, baptize infants. Why do they do that? It's not in the Bible. Yeah, but Rome did it. 
That's why they all use a lot of the liturgy with the robes and the incense and the chanting and so forth. But here's what we need to know. During that entire time, before Constantine, right at the moment Constantine said in this sign conquer, we're all Christians now. 50 years after that, 100 years after that, before and after Luther, before and after Zwingli, during that entire time, there were already and always faithful assemblies, New Testament churches that did not embrace any of Rome's heresies or methodologies. They didn't go along with it. Local churches, they were New Testament churches. Those are our real forebears. We did, we're not Protestants because we never protested. Never came out. Those are our forebears. Which is why, by the way, those forebears, and they came under different names, usually their enemies gave them names, Waldensians and Anabaptists, Anna means rebaptizers, because they say, look, you got baptized in infant, doesn't matter, you need to baptize here. We do that. Thankfully, I don't get persecuted for it right now. But they did then. All of those assemblies that met as it grew, all of those were persecuted heavily, not only by, by Rome, but by Luther, Zwingli. Those guys hated two groups. They hated Jews, and they hated people that, that believed the Bible and assembled and didn't come out of Rome in any way. You see, Professor, shouldn't we celebrate? Shouldn't we be glad for the whole idea of one church? One universal church, because after all, there's strength in numbers. And Christians ought to all just get together. You hear that a lot, right? Break down the walls. There were a lot of songs about that for a while. If Christians ought to just all get together in the entire world. Hey, we will one day, by the way. It's called the rapture. Then we'll be that one big church. Called out assembly, you get it? But until then, shouldn't we just all... Well, you know, the whole idea of strength in numbers is carnal. I should say it's the carnal mind. Let's just remember for a moment what Jesus said. In fact, this is where I want you to turn for sure. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, would you? Because <coughs> this is the very beginning of the whole idea of a church. And in closing, we're going to look at this chapter. Don't get excited. It's a long closing. It's one of those Apostle Paul closings. Matthew 18, all right? So you got this in your mind. Now what the Bible really teaches about what a church is. The church at. Verse 20 says, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together. Now let me stop there. Where two or three are gathered together. Now look, folks, the whole idea of a gathering of people that numbers in the single digits or two is not impressive in the world or to the world, as you know. I just said the carnal mind, and it's so true, never looks at an assembly of two people. Two people. It never looks at that assembly or three people, as he says, where two or three, see the verse? They don't think that's anything of a great value. On the contrary, it's the 85,000 who gather. Or is the Million Man March? Or the packed out Neyland Stadium of over 100,000 fans? That's what people, that's what the world marvels at. It's the World Cup crowd. 
It's the massive pilgrimage going around in, in Mecca or ever. And even for Christians, it's the big stadium promise keepers gathering. That people go, oh, this must be revival. Remember how many of those there were? Dozens and dozens and dozens. Did you see the great revival come out after that? But that's, even Christians look at that. They see a huge crusade in Tokyo and they say, wow, that's what we've been praying for for 2,000 years. That's a mighty move of God. It's the sign of success or power, God's power, or influence in this world. But a tiny group, a sparse group, totally ignored as unimportant by this world and some Christians in this world. And yet, and yet, you just read here in Matthew, that's not a small crowd. That's not a sparse crowd. That's the tiniest crowd you can possibly have. Two is the smallest gathering you can, you can ever have and call it a gathering. And then the next smallest is three. And Jesus said where two or three are gathered. So who is it that points to this gathering of two or three as something of great value or something to, to cherish in your heart of great worth? Is it the world of entertainment or our world of business or politics or religion, education, psychology? No, it's God. It's God who holds this up. And as such, beloved, it is God who reminds us tonight of the tremendous, tremendous blessing of fellowship. And yes, as you'll see as it goes on, the New Testament church. Jesus said where two or three are gathered together, not 200, not 2,000, not 2 million, but two. What's two? Two is Michael and Mariano. Stand up for a minute. All right, you guys. There's two. All right, you see what that is right there? That's a gathering. If they went over there, I'm not going to have them do it. They went over there, they would have a little assembly. And heaven looks down and says, wow, what a crowd. Right? Heaven looks down. You guys can be seated. Mariano loves it too much. Look at all these people, this sea of humanity, if you will. And why? Why? Does Jesus, and why does heaven now, look down and see two or more of a gathering of something that's actually glorious? Because we know it ain't those two, right? But it's two or more. Well, it's in verse 20. Look at it. For where two or three are gathered together in my name. Well, there's the first thing. You see, beloved, this assembly, this assembly, this one, is different. This assembly, it's the first time we're hearing the word church, it's the first time God came to earth and said, let me tell you something. Something new is going to happen. This church is something spiritual. And it, as you'll see here and beyond, it's approved from above. This assembling together in Christ's name, that is the Jesus who wrote this book, the Jesus who gave us his word, the Jesus of the gospel, he is the one who's saying this. He's putting his stamp of approval on this. Let me remind you for a moment that Jesus said in John 16 to the apostles, he said, I have many, many more things to say unto you, but you can't bear it yet. And then he said, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he will tell you. 
Well, folks, he said that just before he died. Where's the many more things? When did he tell the apostles the many more things that we need? Well, the book of John, right? The epistles of John, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. All of those things that Christ through the Holy Spirit gave those same apostles after the resurrection. And all of those things are called the epistles, almost all of them. And all of them, including the book of Revelation, give us doctrine about Christ's church. His assembly, pastors, deacons, church discipline, all of it. And beloved, this is precisely why the gathering together in his name and the many more things he would say about this gathering together in the years to come through the apostles, this gathering together is is precisely why two or three, even that small a group, is actually a glorious, significant thing, more glorious than two million people gathering not in Jesus' name. I'll put it this way. Which gathering in the first century was more significant? 50,000 people at the Roman Colosseum in the name of Caesar or the gathering of two, Paul and Silas, in a Philippian jail at the same time? Which one of those gatherings was more significant? Well, we know which of the two appeared more significant. We know which of the two would impress people more, including, sadly, a lot of Christians. We know how the world rated the two meetings at the time. But which one really changed the world and still does? You see, folks, we are gathered tonight. We are gathered, but we're not just gathered. We're gathered together in His name. In His name. I mean, I don't know if you notice it yet, but, but we're actually preaching His Word, not our own. We are seeking His will, not our own. When we sang, we sang to His glory, not our own. When Brother Barry prayed, and when I prayed earlier, we prayed in his name. By the way, you'll notice the important word in verse 20. It's the word where. Look at it. For where two or three are gathered together in his name. You see, when people gather in Jesus' name, and again, Jesus is going to go on further from here to talk more about his church, the church. It's all in the epistles. But when they gather in Jesus' name, this name that represents his authority, his word, his will, when people gather in his name, doesn't matter the where. There's nothing special about Salt Lake City or the Vatican or Nashville or Missouri. That's holy ground. I want to go to the Vatican. It's holy ground. It's not holy ground. Where people are gathered together in Jesus' name as a New Testament church. We had a missionary in the Arctic. And they were doing a great job up there. And the, the, the ministry has gone on. It's so cold. It's so cold, the politicians have their hands in their own pockets, as you've heard before. It's cold. But you know what? They gathered together, and their hearts were warmed. We have a missionary now we've supported for over 35 years, the foresters, in in a desert. It's hot. Where it's so hot, the cows produce evaporated milk. I I could do this all night, but anyway. (coughs) But you know what? That gathering, that assembly, that local church they have there, Those who gather together in His name. 
doesn't matter where it is, where, Jesus said, where you gather. All ground is sacred ground, right? In God's kingdom, it's all holy ground. So that that gathering there and here tonight and all over the world has more eternal significance than whatever's going on at the United Nations General Assembly tonight or tomorrow or whenever. Or whatever gathering, whatever's going on at The Hague or in Washington, D.C., or Dave, or wherever you want to call it. See, you believe that, Pastor? Absolutely, 100%. I know it. I know that when two or three, smallest gathering Jesus could name, or two or three dozen, or two or three thousand, when those gather together in His name, wherever they meet, something glorious is going on. And one of the reasons why is what He says in the rest of the verse. Look at it again. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there, okay, so you can put the there with the where, wherever they gather, there am I in the midst of them. Wow. Now, wait a minute. We know tonight that this statement by our Lord is a testimony to the deity of Christ. Okay, true. Only God can make a claim of omnipresence, and in one sense, God is everywhere. Yes, true. And everywhere all the time. <clears throat> However, we also know that this presence that he's promising, that's highlighted by the word midst. Because if you're reading this passage, or if you're hearing Jesus in the moment especially, but if you're reading this passage as a whole, you cannot miss this. There is a special promise given to those as few as two or three who assemble together, church together, in the name, all of his authority, all of his word, of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, and this is significant, notice the context of all of this teaching, where it's taken place. Go back, you're in chapter 18, right? You are? Look at verse 1. Same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and said him, so now he's a boy, in the midst. Now, I want you to think about this. It's not an accident. You'll see in a moment. It's not hard to picture what's going on here because a little boy, we raised three little boys. You guys know what it's like to have a little boy. Our Lord is beginning this discourse with his disciples, and he calls, he calls for a little boy. And he takes this little child, it says, and you'll notice that specifically Jesus places the little child where? What's it say? In the midst. In the midst of them. This is verse 2. And then you'll notice he goes on with the little child in the midst and just constantly refers to the child. Verse 3. Little children. Verse 4. As this little child. Verse 5. Such little child. Verse 6. Offend one of these little ones. Verse 10, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. Constantly, this whole discourse, this little child's in the midst, and he keeps talking about little children and this little child, and of such of a little child, and so he goes. And he's a little boy. And no doubt he's holding them. That's what you do with little boys. This message and text continues in the chapter, and then it culminates with the words of verse 20 when he says, There am I in the midst. There am I in the midst. 
The teaching begins with five words in the midst of them, referring to this little boy, this child, and then it ends with the five words in the midst of them, referring to his actual presence with them. It's as if he wants them to know how real. You know, if you want to illustrate the idea of a person's presence, real presence in the midst of of you, what in the world could be better than a little child? You put a 50-year-old in this room or on an airplane or in an elevator or even up on this platform after a few minutes, you won't even notice. But give me a little boy. Put a little boy in the midst of anything, anywhere, anything that you're doing. And his presence will be seen. He'll fill the room up. The reason why I have twos and threes over there now is because I can't compete. All the activity and all the presence and the energy, it's just impossible to miss. So Jesus calls for a little child, places the child in the midst of them, and then for a long time keeps referring to the little child. And then he closes that discussion by promising his presence in the midst of them where two or three are gathered together in his name. Illustrating what, Pastor? Illustrating that his presence is real. That it's a promise. Yeah, do you feel it? I don't know if you feel it or not. I, that's a, I didn't like that song about I can feel the touch of angels' wings. I can, I don't remember how it goes. It's an it's a easy song to like, but it's not my thing. Because it's really by faith. I don't have to feel his presence. I know he's here based upon his promises. And that presence, follow this carefully, is what makes the difference. It's the difference between this gathering and the Elks Lodge down there. In fact, follow this carefully and I'm almost done. It makes all the difference of why a church is unique in New Testament Christianity compared to all religion or denominations. There's a reality. There's, you know, a Muslim does not say, I live, yet not I, but Muhammad liveth in me. That would be blasphemy to them. It really would. Buddhists don't sing the song, My Buddha, I love thee, I know thou art mine. It wouldn't fit. Because it can't fit. But it fits perfectly in a New Testament church. We don't sing sweet hour of lighting candles. Sweet hour of lighting candles. You know why? There's nothing sweet about lighting candles when you have the light of the world already here. His actual presence. You don't need all these little things, these these liturgies to try to impress us that something special is going on. We know, technically I suppose, that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. But we know personally that every time we come together in Christ's name, that Jesus really is in our midst. I should say at least his, highlight, his presence is highlighted by himself. And that's why it reminds us that the local assembly in God's design does what no TV ministry, what no invisible church. I'm a part of the invisible church. Their offerings are invisible too, amen? Yeah, they don't give anything. That's why no TV ministry invisible could ever, there's something that only what Christ talks about here could do. We'll close with it. Verse 15, same chapter. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. 
If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that is in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word may be established. Now, this is amazing to me. You would think that our text in verse 20 would follow, there am I in the midst of them, that it would just follow up with some wonderful discourse on love and grace and worship in the body of Christ. Where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them, and it's all roses and beauty and glory and marshmallows and unicorns or whatever. But it's the conclusion. That verse 20 is the conclusion on a discourse about church discipline. Think about that. Which, beloved, is a reminder that with Christ in the midst, with Him in the midst of this assembly, the assembly is no way perfect. Flawless. I don't go to church. Too many hypocrites in there. You got the wrong idea of church first. Of course it's not perfect. There's people gathering together in these assemblies. If two are gathered together in His name, and Jesus is in the midst. What does that tell us about verse 15? It says, if one's offended, you go to them, and he alone, right? So now you have two. Two or more gathered. He's in the midst. That's two with Christ in the midst when they're doing the right thing, as this says. Verse 16 says, if he doesn't listen, make it three. Still remembering that Christ is in the midst of one, two, two, or three. And by all means, he's saying that with all of our differences and all of our grievances that are going to happen and faults and failures, if we'll gather together in his name, if you're coming for your own agenda because you want to get a position or you're this or you're that, and there's pride, and there's ego, no bueno, I mean, all bets are off then. But if you're gathering in His name, you knowing that He's in the midst, man, how easy it is. How more incumbent upon it is us, on us. How more effective for us to do what He commands here and exhibit grace and forgiveness and kindness and justice. I don't understand. And you know, 35 years, 36th, 36th year now pastoring this church. I was in a church for Four years before here, two years before that in another church. None of those churches had church splits. I don't, this one had never has. I've never understood all these churches have church split, church split, church split. Not if you do what this Bible says. Gather in His name. And knowing that He's in the midst. What are you going to fight about? What carnal thing is worth that? The verse before our text adds a specific promise to those who agree in prayer, Right? If any two of you shall agree, I'm just saying God loves agreement. God loves gathering. God loves an assembly of those who do it in Christ's name. And I'll close with this. My third closing. If Jesus loves the church, then shouldn't we? If the Lord Jesus gave himself for the church, then shouldn't we? Let me tell you what doesn't impress me. Or let me just tell you what I see. When I go to a Bible college, Crown College, or any Bible college, and I see this giant choir of young people singing, and I see this big group over here of, 
I preached at Pensacola for their Bible conference. They had 7,000 people there in that church. And I went to the master's class and taught that class. There were hundreds in their master's class for theology, for ministry. When I see that, do you know what I see? Always, 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 I see a little local church somewhere because that guy came from a local church where he got saved. That girl came from a local church where she got saved. That young lady came from a local church from here, here. They just all gathered there. I'm not impressed by the size of a school. What I'm impressed by is why that school has so many people in the ministry because of some little local church out there, out there, over there. I'm just telling you that's where lives are changed. Lives are changed in the assembly. I've talked about the genius. It's not really the genius. It's the, the glory of God's wisdom in giving the past 2,000 years, giving to us the local New Testament church. What I see, when I see a mission board, and I was going through one today, and all these missionaries, I mean, it was the countries A, B, C, Alpha, and I was, it took me this long to get through the A's of all the countries. When I see that mission board, I go, whoa, look at that board. That board's amazing. That board's done great work. What a great mission board. All that mission board has done is taken people who got saved in local churches here, like I did when I was 12, and here. The miracle's not the mission board. The miracle they call the West Coast Baptist the miracle in the desert or something. It's not a miracle. The miracle is the fact that somebody got saved in a church, a local church, and then they went out there or wherever else. This is where God is working in the world today. Local Bible-believing New Testament churches. And God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us what a church truly is and that Christ loved the church. And that one day we will all be called out together, assembled together. And we will be the one church then. But until then, it is the church at Jupiter. And may we be faithful always to you and to your word. And may your people understand the power and the value, the biblical reality of local New Testament churches. And that fruit would remain because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website, at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.